0: Welcome back to another episode of A Daisy Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhale, and I am a Daisy woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and today we are so delighted to be joined once again by Washington State Senator Manka Dhingra. Senator Manka Dhingra was first elected to the Senate by the constituents of the 45th Legislative District in 2017, and she made history as the first Sikh legislator to ever be elected in the United States. She is the deputy majority leader of the Washington State Senate and has sponsored and passed legislation addressing a wide range of issues, including curbing domestic violence and sexual assault, preventing firearm violence, providing property tax relief for seniors and people with disabilities prosecuting financial fraud and reforming the criminal justice system with an evidence-based approach. Senator Dingra brings two decades of experience as a prosecutor and behavioral health expert to her roles as chair of the Senate Behavioral Committee subcommittee and vice chair of the Senate Law and Justice Committee. She also serves on the Ways and Means Committee. As a member of the Special Committee on Economic Recovery, she is helping the state to craft an economic plan to lead to an equitable recovery from the COVID economic downturn. Senator Dingra is seeking re-election, and we are so delighted to welcome her back to the show. Senator Dingra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's
1: such a pleasure to be back.
0: Well, it is such a distinct honor to have you back again, and we really can't thank you enough for making time in your busy schedule and campaign schedule to join us today. And for listeners who are interested in finding out more about you and your reelection campaign, your site is m a n k dot and you can find out where the senator stands on a variety of issues, some of which we'll be diving into today. And I uh, do want to offer that you made history when you were elected several years ago as the first Sikh legislator to be elected as a state senator in U.S. history. And that is really nothing short of remarkable and groundbreaking. And I will keep bringing it up when you come because it's just a watershed moment. But one of the questions I always like to pose to the plethora of guests that I've welcomed from the South Asian community and our diaspora is just to inquire a bit about your immigrant journey or immigrant roots because I think that bicultural experience really uniquely informs you, not only as a legislator, but also as a human being. And I know you and your family moved here to California when you were 13, which is also an amazingly transformative time in a young person's life, but would really enjoy hearing more from you about that journey and reflecting back on that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I am very proud to have been the first Sikh legislator in the country. That was five years ago. I had really hoped that I would still not be the only but unfortunately, I still am the only sick legislator in the country. I'm hoping that'll change again in Washington, because we do have another sick woman running for the Washington State Senate, Satwinder Carr. But I will say, even though right now I'm the only sick legislator, we've had so many women of color, South Asian women in office. And we actually broke A record this session because for the first time in U.S. history, we had a Muslim Sikh Hindu legislator all serving in the same body. So it was me as a Sikh legislator. We had Senator Muller Das as a Hindu legislator. And we had, we welcomed Senator Yasmin Trudeau as the first Muslim legislator. So it was just fascinating to me that yet again in Washington, we're just breaking all kinds of barrier. So I wanted to start with that and then talk about your question about the immigrant journey. My journey was slightly different than what I hear from from others in the sense that my father actually came to the U.S. in the 70s to attend graduate school. So he got his master's from USC. And at that time, you know, many people simply just stayed in the U.S. But he and my mom had an arranged marriage and she did not want to live in the U.S. So they uh, lived in India. And his sister actually had already moved to the US, and his other sister was in Dubai. And my grandparents, his parents, moved to the US when my brother and I were not yet teenagers. And so it was unusual that we had so much of our family in the US. My father went for education here, and we were still in India. And then unfortunately, he actually got diagnosed with cancer. And so It was a fairly active and serious cancer. And so he came to California for treatment. So he and my mom came here and he passed away. And at that time, you know, the immigration laws were definitely different. And so my mom had the option of either moving to the U.S., or staying in India, and she decided that it would be more beneficial for my brother and I if she moved. And so at the age of 13, with my father just having passed away, you know, nine months ago or eight months ago, my mother moved my brother and I to the US. Though I will say it was different in the sense that we had family here. So we had a support uh, structure here when we moved.
0: First of all, that is such an amazingly poignant Background story. I wasn't aware even in our last conversation. So, firstly, I have to recognize the bravery and courage of your mother as a single woman, newly single upon the death, a heart wrenching loss of your father, or her spouse. I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. We're going to dive into other questions. You're going to see, actually, my next question dives into this, that this strength and this lineage of very strong woman is very indicative of, of your background and who you are. And that story you just shared is underscores it. But I think what's really interesting about your ba- background, based on our last interview and just in researching for this podcast, is that you have a background as a prosecutor as well as in behavioral health. And what an interesting juxtaposition of two areas that Are really intrinsically tied together. In fact, you educated me so vastly during our last conversation about how indelibly tied together those two areas are in looking at our communities and society at large today. And in our last conversation, you really credited the fact that you come from a long line of very strong women, such as your grandmother, your grandmother's sisters, and of course, your mother that you just referenced, who really advocated for survivors of gender-based violence. And we're an embodiment of strong feminists as role models. So I want to pause there and just take all that in for a moment, And in addition to the story that you shared with us again about the loss of your father, and, and celebrate that and offer a token of gratitude to them and those who raised them, because we need more women like that at every level of leadership in societies around the world, but especially as legislators in this country. So I would enjoy um, hearing more about how those familial role models impacted you and your decision to pursue a law degree at UC Berkeley and then become a prosecutor.
1: Thank you for that. Yes. When I say I come from a long line of strong women, I'm not joking. They really are. (laughs) And I'll just say, you know, I have a daughter now. So for all those mothers out there, it is not easy raising a strong young woman, but I think it definitely pays off as they get into adulthood. And, you know, i think that is what's really important is as parents as mothers we cultivate that strength that power and that independence in the next generation as early on as possible and you know i was always told i could be anything i wanted to be and you know i i think the the law came in because you know, I was always told I was very argumentative growing up. I loved my Earl Stanley Gardner books about Perry Mason. And so I was attracted to the legal field and frankly, because I didn't want to be an engineer or a doctor. And we do know we have to own up to the fact that in the Indian culture, in the South Asian culture, that is definitely the push. And so, you know, I was a great rebel in saying, hey, I don't want to be an engineer or a doctor, but I'll be a lawyer. And the prosecution really spoke to me because when we take a look at, you know, who are overwhelmingly victims of crime, they're women and especially women of color. And so to me, that was a part of advocating for victims and survivors and making sure that there are women prosecutors, that there are women of color prosecutors who can really step up and do justice, right? Because that is what the prosecutor's role is, is to do justice. So definitely my career was impacted by the women in my lives and the manner in which I was brought up. And UC Berkeley just had such an amazing history of the civil rights movement and feminism. And it's just culturally that place just spoke to my heart so i was very excited but i got in and was able to start my college education there
0: well, no, that's absolutely phenomenal. And I agree with you that there's we have a couple of options, right? Engineering or medicine. And, and I think that's changing. And as you've noted that we have a lot of legislators from our diaspora, thankfully, and, and we're embracing other career avenues and opportunities. And, you know, I know you're not only an advocate for those that are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, so much so that you co-founded Chaya, an organization that assists South Asian survivors to domestic violence. And you led the organization's work toward ending systemic violence through education and prevention. And I do have to offer a beautiful story from our last conversation. The name Chaya comes from a Rabindranath Tagore poem where he talks about Chaya, the shade, and, and saying quote, on your weary journey, let us provide you with shade, end quote. So can you tell us more about this organization, what it means to you and others who really need these resources and support?
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, when I was at Berkeley, I got involved with organizations that help women. And so I used to volunteer in Oakland at a place, at a domestic violence shelter called a safe place. And at the same time, the first South Asian domestic violence organization was starting there called Narika. So I was working at a safe place and I was involved in the startup of Narika, you know, trying to figure out like, you know, how do we provide culturally competent resources for women? Because what we were finding out at that time, especially with my work at a safe place, is that that shelter did not cater to women who may be vegetarian or may have different needs. And so there was a huge lack in services. And when I graduated from Berkeley, I came to law school at the University of Washington. And so I wanted to continue that work. And so I reached out to a few people to see if they were interested in starting a South Asian uh, domestic violence organization. And there were a few women who were working in the domestic violence arena here in Washington. And so we got together. And I had the manual from a safe place and all the work that we had done at Narika and basically Chaya came about because we combined both of those resources and the expertise that frankly three of us had at that time and when we were coming up with the name it was really important to me that the name signify a value or a policy that would drive the organization and that's where Chaya came about because it is about empowerment. It's not about telling someone how to live or what to do. It is providing that respite on the person's journey. So it truly is about helping them when they need it, but not dictating what that need should look like or what that help should look like. So years later, when the recession hit, the nonprofit was struggling and there was another nonprofit called API Safety Center and they were struggling. And so people said, Hey, should we combine the two? So it becomes more of an Asian Pacific Islander organization, not just South Asian. And my only request was that the name Chaya not go. And so now it's called API Chaya because we have expanded it to more than just South Asian women. It's, it's the greater Asian Pacific Islander community. So, you know, that culture of just empowering women and helping them is still there and now they do so much more work in trafficking as well as we which we know is a huge problem so i'm just so proud of you know what that little organization where we used to meet in my house has truly become oh my goodness that's so inspiring
0: and beautiful and i hope for anybody listening that they sort of get the concept that you can start small and it can grow and exponentially help others. Because I know in, in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, exactly, just a few like-minded women from the South Asian diaspora and community who also started an organization, an organization similar to Chaya here, and, and it's grown. And so really applaud you on that. And I know those roots started in college for you, having research for this podcast. So any young people listening as well, you know, don't hesitate, get involved. Don't let age be a deterrent. This is really something that cuts across all demographics. But, you know, in going to your campaign site and understanding your policy agenda and issues, I know that addressing public safety is a key part of your platform. And that based upon your extensive work with victims of domestic violence and their families, you recognize that language and cultural barriers often prevent reporting and self-protection in violent situations. But you also believe that we can improve public safety, save taxpayer resources, and help people through difficult times by closing the revolving door of jail, homelessness, and crime that impacts many people, but especially veterans and others who are struggling with mental illness and and substance use disorder. You also call out the fact that progress can be made at the state level in how these issues are addressed, because too often these issues are wholly interrelated. And some other legislators and experts have even called this A school to prison pipeline which is really just such a sad analogy woefully rooted in truth sometimes and i want to quote you directly from our last conversation quote the criminal justice system sees people at the worst moment in life the system has not been doing a good job of recognizing that people change for many years our country allowed the need for punishment and the need for rehabilitation to get out of balance today we have an opportunity to help restore that balance, end quote. And so really want to hear more from you on this topic. It's not something we hear enough about. And and also individuals exiting the criminal justice system need to find a way to not just survive, but really thrive in their communities.
1: Thank you. You know, this is an issue we talk about a lot, and especially this year, you know, with COVID, we've seen an increase in crime. And you see a lot of People just talking about criminal activity, and it's really important to actually take a look when they say there's a rise in crime, to say where is that rise? You know, what are the criminal activity that we're saying that we're seeing? And one of the things that people don't realize is that the increase in crime, 30% of it is domestic violence. When they talk about violent crime, there was a recent Information done in the state of Washington that 50% of the violent crime in Washington is due to domestic violence. And so when we talk about, oh, crime is at an all time rise, it's not unfortunately just strangers. We're talking about domestic violence. Now, when we talk about property crimes, absolutely, there has been an increase there too. And unfortunately, you know, that does tend to happen when there is something like a pandemic or social issues that are impacting people's lives but i just want to be very clear when we talk about criminal justice issues around law and order we really have to do a deep dive into exactly what we're talking about a lot of these Tough on crime measures don't work because people don't take the time to really understand what are the factors that are getting individuals involved in the criminal justice system and how the criminal justice system is dealing with those specific factors. And so we are really not going to be able to have a meaningful conversation about responses to violence or to crime unless we are willing to take a deep dive into really understanding the root causes of it. So that's a lot of what I do when I talk about criminal justice reform, because especially in terms of the school to prison pipeline, you know, why are those individuals getting involved in the criminal justice system? And one of the things that is really that people in the criminal justice system know, but the rest of the population doesn't, is that the best way to reduce crime is to make sure our children graduate with a high school degree. They don't have to get A's and B's. They simply have to graduate. That high school degree, those individuals do not get involved in the criminal justice system or they get involved at very minimal rates. And so when we want to really make a big impact in crime, make sure our kids have the tools they need to graduate and then have a plan on getting a a job. And literally that is what's what it's going to take to keep our community safe.
0: Um, wow, it's so illuminating because, as you mentioned, I was not aware about the domestic violence being such a high percentage of of what law enforcement often responds to. Because you're right, it's a very complex situation with crime. It's it's not a monolith, and and so that's really staggering. It's not what we perhaps think of when we think of crime. Now, as well, you brought up the data point from our last conversation that it really will stay with me forever as it relates to the correlation between high school matriculation and the reduction in incidents with the criminal justice system. In fact, as you stated, the data is so clear and and for those of us that aren't, you know, close to that system, it's it's really shocking and There's a reduction also, as you mentioned, in the chance of going even to an emergency room for severe mental health issues also. So I really can't think of anything that's more important to the future of this country. So I really applaud you for bringing this to the forefront. And one of the other top priorities that you kind of addressed that goes hand in hand with all of this is graduating from school in general, but with an individualized plan for success. And in your estimation, education is the state's duty, and the public schools play an important role in serving as a great equalizer in life. And overcrowded classrooms throughout Washington's communities is something you find very concerning. So we'd love to hear your comments on that.
1: Yeah. You know, we've been doing a lot of work in public education in the state of Washington because it really, a fully funded public education system is the foundation of our democracy. It really is what gives every child an equal opportunity to succeed. And we do know that it is that education that is a foundation for opportunity. And so we've been doing a lot of work in Washington to really make sure we are addressing classroom sizes. We are also doing a lot of work to ensure that our schools have the resources to deal with all the issues our children come to school with. You know, when these kids in elementary school, you know, show up running into their classrooms, the schools, the teachers have no idea whether these kids have witnessed domestic violence at home, whether one of their parents is doing drugs or has issues with alcohol or there's any kind of of abuse. And unfortunately, given the number of hours that a child spends in the school, it does become an issue that the schools have to deal with. And in the past, you know, it really was not seen as the school's responsibility to deal into, uh, into these issues, but it really is because it impacts the children's ability to learn. When children come from families where there's hunger, you know, children can't learn on an empty stomach. So making sure that they're fed, making sure that our schools understand childhood trauma, that they understand what... Adverse childhood experiences are and how they manifest in learning is important. And so in Washington, we have really been doing a lot of work around this arena and really talking about social emotional learning, especially with the Internet and the manner in which we we do our jobs you have to be emotionally mature to handle adulthood these days because a lot of the information we need is available online. So it's not about memorizing dates and times and learning formulas anymore because we already know where to find that information. Education takes us to the next step on how are you doing critical analysis? How are you working with your peers? How are you doing project-based learning? And so, Our education system needs to change and be updated to really make sure people have the skills for what it takes in today's workplace. And then really understanding that, yes, we do want a big section of our students to go to college, but we also have to understand that there's a lot of opportunities for apprenticeship programs and really making sure that we're not forgetting about that. Being a plumber. You can make an amazing salary being a plumber, doing woodwork. And so so I think there's a lot to be said about, about taking a look at different opportunities and making sure our children are ready to take advantage of those opportunities. So it's always very exciting to me when we are taking a look at a at the whole child, and really making sure that we are meeting all the needs that the child has prior to them graduating from high school. I think that is what makes sure we have a successful adult population, one that has addressed a lot of the needs that they have and has the ability to function in our economy.
0: Well, there's no question about that, and and it's so true. Like during the COVID pandemic, and and homeschooling, or when children couldn't necessarily go to the classroom, that's when the topic of, of nutrition came up, and the fact that many children and families depend on school breakfast or lunch, and that's a great point you bring up, and and of course you're at the growth spurt in your life. And and so looking at the holistic perspective is so critically important. And I think that um, listeners will understand that I mean, you, you have a deep sense of personal responsibility here. And so it kind of ties into this next um, topic on your site and my next question for you pertaining to accountability. And really, government works best when there is trust. And I think based on your track record and all of your experience, it's very clear that you you hold this very close to your heart and really take this personally. But to develop trust, government needs to be transparent and held accountable. And you offer that we need leaders who are willing to stand up to lobbyists and big corporations when it comes to closing tax breaks that do not help our communities and take on the challenge of improving regressive tax systems that really unfairly burden low and middle income families. and. I don't know with the cost of the rising cost of fuel and gasoline. I I imagine it must be a very trying time for everybody in this country, but especially burdensome on low and middle income families. So, really welcome your comments and all of that.
1: Yeah, you know, one uh, you know, I'm so proud to live and represent Washington State, and Washington actually does lead the country in so many different issues. One of the issues that actually it Remains one of the worst is in our tax policy. We have one of the most regressive tax structures in the country. And so it's really challenging because our lowest and middle income people pay the most amount of taxes as a percentage of their income. Because we do not have a state income tax and it is based on sales tax and property taxes. And so, you know, this is something we continue to look at to see how we can make sure we are balancing out our upside down tax structure. So some of the things that I'm so proud of is we actually passed a working family tax credit in our state, which means that low and middle income individuals actually have the opportunity to to take advantage of that and keep some of those tax dollars themselves to help. We did a lot of work around childcare and making sure that low-income individuals have access to good quality, affordable childcare. And so a lot of the programs that we deal with, they actually end up being a resource for families. You know, my husband's an engineer, I'm a lawyer. When I had my kids, we had to have a conversation on what we were gonna do for childcare. And we decided to hire a nanny and I literally, my salary went to pay for childcare. And I can't even imagine if you don't come from a stable two income household, mm-hmm. how single parents um, deal with childcare. And we do know that especially women, single mothers have a very hard time professionally, because the expenses of taking care of children is so high. So there's a lot of work we can do around those support structures to make sure that providing those resources are what's going to help low income and middle income families. And that's what we've been doing in the state of Washington.
0: No, it's incredible. And as a mother of four children, I I concur with you. I feel that pain and it, it's like you're entrusting your whole heart to the care of somebody and and you're right how and yet you're still um, tasked with finding work, pursuing your livelihood and it kind of demonstrates why there was an exodus of, of many women from, from the workforce based on the recent pandemic and perhaps still seeing some carryover even today. Now, I know that the environment is also very important to you, and especially as it pertains to ensuring that future generations have a a planet, first of all, that isn't plagued with worsening conditions as as it relates to global warming, and understanding that data and science really should drive our policies and how we preserve the world for our kids and grandchildren. And you are an advocate in embracing new green technologies that will help grow our economy and ensure the rest of the world isn't surpassing us in in this regard. But I would really enjoy hearing more from you and all of that.
1: You know, and this is where again, I'll say it's good to be a Washingtonian as so many of your subscribers might know that our governor ran for president a few years ago and he is a huge environmentalist. So, you know, with his leadership in the state, we really are doing great work in making sure we're preserving our salmon and taking a look at our gas emissions and taking a look at the green, green technologies. But I'll tell you, as a mother, what really concerns me is clean water. And this is something that is not just for our state, but it's international. It's very concerning to me how the water is getting polluted, because in order to live, we need clean water. And so to me, that is critical. And I think any work we can do in order to keep so many of the chemicals out of our water would be critical. It really is alarming if you take a look look at what is in our waters currently, it really is scary. And so I do worry greatly about clean water and uh, seeing what we can do in that regard. And the next is clean air. We do know that more and more children are growing up with asthma. We also know that both clean water and clean air are more problematic in low-income areas, in areas where people of color live. The fact that we still have schools in this country that have lead in their in their drinking water is horrific. You know, that's where our children's brains are being developed. And we know that lead in our children's body is not good for their brain development. So while as a state, we're making a lot of progress on the environment. I am so greatly concerned about uh, clean water and clean air and the the water that's being delivered through the tap in our schools and in our low income areas
0: that is such a great point. And, you know, instead of being reactive, I'm, I'm hopeful we can start to be proactive. I would say Washington State is certainly leading the way in all of that. And and with certainty from the South Asian background and perspective, look, we come from a country and many of us have immigrant roots in countries where the water is not safe to drink. And so, it, it, you know, we take that for granted in this country, but such a great call out. And I cannot believe that we are approaching the end of our time together. But I did want to birch the topic about transportation and growth. Because it's important to the voters of the 45th legislative district. And you offer that you vastly appreciate the fact that dynamic growth can offer challenges to the quality of life. And you empathize as a working mom who sits in traffic every day, but you wanna work with your colleagues on common sense reforms to the transportation system, continued expansion of transit, and thoughtful management of how and where the region can grow from here. And as you point out, the east side should continue to drive global innovation while allowing folks to be able to drive to work, school and community events safely. So would really enjoy hearing more about that.
1: Yes, and I am just so excited that the Biden administration put in so much money towards transportation because it is so critical. You know, when you talk about the environment, you're actually talking about transportation because when we're driving and we are sitting in those cars, guess what? We're polluting our air. When we talk about, again, transportation, we're talking about affordability because, you know, the truth is the people who work for us, maybe our gardeners or our nannies or the barista at your local cafe, they can't live in the areas in which they work. And so they have to get in the cars and drive someplace else. And so, you know, take a look at transportation, you have to take a look at that intersectionality between housing affordability, the environment, and taking a look at, you know, what does the future look like with self-driving cars, with electric cars, taking a look at multimodal, you know, these e-bikes, they're a great way for people to get around. And so making sure we're taking a look at that entire infrastructure and how it connects with the community, because there are some cities where They see a lot of traffic, not because it's being generated there. It's because people are passing through their cities to get to their work or to their homes. And so it it is really important to take a look at different models. What I'm really excited about in Washington is we have been expanding a light rail system. And we are taking a look at getting high speed rail that can really connect Canada to Washington to Oregon And those are things that we as a country actually haven't done a good job with. Like when we travel to Europe, when we travel to Asia, we hop on those trains, we hop on those buses and we take public transportation. That same network is not there in the US. And so I'm actually really excited that the Biden administration has been prioritizing transportation and making dollars available for trains and electrification of our grid. So lots more on this, but again, another area where I think we as a country are making great progress.
0: Well, I think that's really true. And it kills, kills two birds with one stone. The dependency upon gasoline and, and oil would reduce be reduced if we had greater access to public transportation. And then most importantly, the populations, those that need it the most, would have an ability to, to travel, as you stated, without the need to own a car. And you're right. It's just it's something we think nothing of in this country, but we can take notes based on and traveling to other countries, as we've indicated. And I can't believe that we are at the end of our time together, but the work you've done is nothing short of incredible. And I really encourage listeners to visit www.electmonca.com, which I'm going to have a link to in the podcast podcast notes, so you see how you can get involved in her re-election campaign, or understand where she stands on issues. Um, historic, historic candidacy, and again, a historic re-election campaign. Any other comments or thoughts that you want to offer as we close out?
1: Yes, thank you, and thank you for mentioning my re-election campaign. You know, it takes a lot to get into elected office, and it takes a lot more to stay there. And unfortunately, the only you need money to do that. And so thank you for plugging my website. I will say that donations are greatly welcomed because to me it's important that I stay in my position with the help of the community. It is the community that got me here and it is the same community that I rely to support me. And it is so critical for us to see people who look like us in the halls of power. And so I wanna thank you for elevating me and my message. And I wanna thank all your listeners for doing the same. And I so greatly appreciate all the outpouring of support that I've received from everyone.
0: Oh, it is so well-deserved and really just a pleasure to have known you, to speak to you. And I think anyone listening will will also feel the same. And we just celebrate you, celebrate your victory. And I hope you will not. I am glad to hear there is another Sikh legislator who I hope to speak with soon in Washington State. But it's just amazing, always amazing to speak with you. And we will be watching the campaign and hope to welcome you back again soon. Senator Manka Dhingra.